0: Crosspoint Community Church, we are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. What a cool morning. What an awesome morning that we're able to participate together in this kind of thing. Um, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to James chapter 2. we gonna be starting in, in verse 14. And this is that passage that, uh, that uh, James kind of gets attacked on for the perception of a works-based salvation, which isn't really at, at all what James is speaking of. And just to remind you that remember that James grew up with Jesus didn't become a follower of Jesus until after Jesus resurrection but that James relies heavily on Jesus teachings for everything that he writes in this letter to the churches that are dispersed and being persecuted and and so really James is just swimming in the environment in the water of the teachings of Jesus and what Jesus said. And so um, there's really not an issue, but we're gonna kind of walk through this this morning. And and I think that there's something really specific that God wants to communicate with us this morning. But first of all, as we get into this, um, salvation is the forgiveness of sin secured by Jesus' death and his resurrection. And that salvation is freely given and unearned by anyone who will call upon Jesus as savior and king. Salvation is a gift that God gives to us and even to the extent of our faith, my faith, your faith is a gift from God, not based on whether or not you deserve it, but the fact that God is gracious. And so we don't do anything to earn our salvation or our faith. Sanctification, on the other hand, is really living out the process of becoming like Jesus over our lifetime. And so really, there's there's this dilemma within Christianity that's not necessarily present in, in any other world religion because of God's role in our lives and salvation. Because when it comes to other religions, there's something you have to do to earn, it is performance-based, it is transactional. In, 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 in the kingdom of God, everything is based on Jesus. And so, and so there's, there's sometimes a difficulty or a dilemma when it comes to works and the, the things we do, the activities that we do. Um, why, would, why would I work for something or work on the other end of something when, when I can get it for free, when it's just given to me? Um, What is the motivation there? And and sometimes it's it's, it's just in good faith in the sense that God did all this and so we are are producing fruit, doing things, activities and works as maybe thankfulness to God. Maybe works like activities, things that we do because of our faith are those activities that are made by super Christians or special Christians like Kingsley who's going to the mission field. And that's not you know, really expected of anyone else but just someone in particular. Or maybe there's just really no value and just kind of we all get to heaven and, and it doesn't matter what you did or didn't do because we just all get to heaven because, because God, God gave us that forgiveness and if we accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior and, and, and that's how it works. So what's the nature of faith and works and the balance in the life of a believer? And that's what James wants to talk through. And really, I think what James wants to talk through is this idea of our faith maturing. That which God gives us, our place in maturing that faith and that we would have a complete and perfect and whole faith over our lifetime. In verse 14, James starts and he says this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? We ask asks there is he says, what good is it? Or, or maybe what, what is profitable? What is the benefit? Or what gain is there that someone has faith and they, they don't do anything with it? Is, is that beneficial to anyone? Can that faith save him? And, and, and so he, he asked the question that is a pretty legitimate question. Um, it's kind of like asking the question, um, if you were given a car and you never drove it or did anything with it, you really own a car. <laughs> and it's just kind of sitting there. What good, what good is it? What's the point? What's the point of having that car if it's just sitting there? And and so to understand kind of what James is working toward, we kind of have to understand not only this passage, but also kind of where it's sandwiched. And so he goes on and he gives this scenario to kind of help illustrate. And he gives this, this example. So he says in verse 15, he says, Uh, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So it gives this, this example of a person that you, a brother or sister that you come into contact with who is habitually underfed, constantly falling short of the daily supply of what we would see as required needs for us. And so you come across this person and you recognize that and you see them and you interact with them and your response to them is, uh, depart, go in peace, be warm and well-fed. And he says, is that, does that benefit anyone in that, in that scenario? One thing of note, James has used the poor people who are in need more than once, in fact, he uses it a few times in his letter, which is interesting that he keeps going back to this thing. Last week, we talked about the, the difference in treatment in the gathering that he, that he uh, talked about between a rich person and a poor person. And now he talks about a person who's in need coming to you, and what do you do about that? I think it's interesting that he keeps using these kinds of examples, which might suggest that there was a first century church blind spot in how they saw one another on, their, on, their, on, on a visual level. Like, there's possible that there was a blind spot in the early church that there was a preference toward people who look more like themselves, are more of the level that they are at, and maybe have more in common with than maybe somebody who's of a different socioeconomic level or a different place of need in life. And so James seems to be pointing this out and coming back to that because it apparently maybe is a blind spot, and that there's maybe a pattern of unchrist like thinking that is typical in the early church. Or maybe something that's growing in the early church. Because we know that there was a lot of generosity, but we know that even though we can do some things well, we also have blind spots and, and kind of fail in some areas. So I think one of the things we need to think about is, what are those blind spots in our church? What do we miss? What are the things that we don't see well because of our context and what we regularly are exposed to? But nonetheless, he, he says that so your actions, you run into this person and, and you interact for a minute, and then you say, um, you know, depart, go in peace, be warm and well fed, which was actually a pretty common statement between believers expressing both well wishes and confidence in God's presence and provision among their fellowship. But James asks the question he says, okay, but in this scenario, you, you have something that you could offer them to, to better their life in that moment. And what you do is you say something kind or nice and then go on their way. He says, what is the benefit? Really, what is the benefit to you and what is the benefit to them? How did that grow you or ex- ex- challenge you to grow? And how did it make a difference and cause the person to grow that you interacted with? Now, there's nothing wrong with that statement. It's nothing wrong with saying things to people that are maybe kind or nice or well-wishing, but it didn't profit anyone in that scenario. I mean, what if, what if it's after church today and, 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 and I run into you and, and I say, hey, uh, you know what? My car won't start in the parking lot. I have some jumper cables. Could you pull your car over to my car and could you, can, can we jump my car? And what if your response to me was, you know what, I want you to have a really great day and I hope your car gets started. Be on your way. Like, that's not awesome. Like, that is not, I, I, I don't really care at that point what you just said. I feel like you're a little bit of a jerk. <laughs> and, and so really, in that scenario, what good did that do anyone I mean, it kept you from being inconvenienced in that moment and maybe there was an opportunity to grow for you in that. And it also didn't help me at all because my car's still not starting in the parking lot. And that's kind of what James is saying here. He's saying, what good is that? How did that profit you or them? And he says, in the same way, he says, in the same way, by itself, if it does not have works, faith is dead. And, and again, in his use of dead, it's not non-existent necessarily because remember, James is writing to believers. He's writing to the church and believers and people who are pursuing a life with Christ. And so dead here is, is this idea of useless, inactive, inert, non-functioning, not doing anything. He says in the same way, it's, 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 it's functionless. It's not being used. And so really the failure to act in the presence of obvious needs not only ignores the one in need, but also raises questions about the spiritual state of the one who fails to act. It kind of brings up a question of, okay, well, what's the state of my heart in my unwillingness to to, to help? Now, there can be lots of reasons. Sometimes I literally can't because of something that's going on. This isn't a shame thing but this is a thoughtful thing of is my faith being beneficial to anyone around me because it's interesting the world around us is totally comfortable with you and I having a strong faith in Jesus Christ and all that he said as long as we keep it to ourselves right that's what the world says as long as you keep that to yourself, you are, we are good with you believing whatever you want. But once that faith comes out and starts to be evidence to other people and we start talking about the faith and we start talking about Jesus and what he wants and what he does and how he cares for you and how he loves you, then the world starts to get uncomfortable and upset and even angry. And so James is saying, don't have the faith that the world wants you to have <laughs> that's just hidden inside and no one sees it. Don't let it be unuseful or inactive because the, what, what the faith that the world wants us to have is completely worthless because it doesn't do any good to anyone else. And, and so really he goes on and, and now he gets to this place where there's almost an objection to his, his argument of talking about faith and the usefulness of faith and faith being dead or faith without works. And so there's this objection. And it's interesting because in the next couple of verses, the problem that we have is that James wrote a letter to a group of people and we're not sure what he's exactly answering. We don't know what the question was. <laughs> We don't know what the other side was. And so he, he does this thing, which we do all the time. You know how you go through scenarios and objections when you're going into a conversation you say, okay, this person's probably gonna say this and then, and then they'll say this and then they'll qualify it with this and then they'll try to like do kind of a mic drop thing and they'll say this. And, and this is how, this, that's what's gonna happen. So I need to be prepared for that. It's kind of like James is, is doing that here. And, and the problem with, with the next part of, of this, which is in verse 18, it says, but someone will say, so he's giving some example of an argument, an objection to what he's saying. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now those two verses, we're not sure exactly what the objection is. The length of the objection is because there's no punctuation in the Greek text, so it could be just the part where he says, "You have faith and I have works," and maybe James starts to respond after that, or it could be all of eighteen and nineteen, both of those verses, and that's the whole objection, and then maybe James responds in verse twenty, and 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 it's kind of one of those things. Like this is this is the problem, and maybe like if I were to say the statement, uh, if I were to say. Travis said, I love maple bars. What am I saying? Am I saying Travis loves maple bars? Or am I saying Travis says, I like maple bars? I mean, you kind of have to see the punctuation, right? To understand what that question is, what that statement is. And so then it gets even, it can even become more complex and confusing as it goes on. And so, and so this isn't like critical But it is significant, I think, to understand what's going on here. And and there's a lot of scholars who have different ideas of what this is. So there's not necessarily a one agreed upon direction. It probably depends on your Bible translation and that kind of stuff. It doesn't change the message that James is giving. But here's what I think is going on. I think, and this isn't the only way to think about it, but I think the objection is verse 18 and 19. And basically, what I think is happening is the objection James is saying that you might have to his his connection between faith and works and how they work together is, is this that that he says, you know what? Uh, in in the text, he he starts out with, you know, but you're you're going to say something like, uh, you know, you have faith and I have works. So so here's here's what I want here's what I want to show you how you're wrong in this. Um, so go ahead and take some, of, uh, take some of your beliefs, the things you have in your mind and your heart, and make it visible by your actions. Make your beliefs visible by your actions, which we really can't do because my actions don't always represent my beliefs. We know that because we're human beings. And, and, and so if you can do that, uh, I'll then take my actions and will make my belief visible through them, which is impossible. How would I make my actions visible through my beliefs? That doesn't even make sense. So, so and, and I know, you know, you'll claim that you know, because you believe in one God, that that demonstrates, you know, you'll, you'll show that you believe in one God by your good conduct, but, but you know, that's what even the demons think. So, so this, we're kind of at an impasse. How can we even know that each other has any kind of faith? And I think basically the, the argument is this. It's, it's saying, look, you've got people who love Jesus and follow Jesus, but they continuously fall into sin and repent and ask forgiveness and live a little, and then fall into sin. And they just, it's such a struggle for them to follow Jesus. And, and we can't be the final judge of whether or not they actually know Jesus. God is, God knows it says, you know, you can't determine if that's a person. That person is, you know, you know, their belief. They may have great faith in Jesus, but their actions, they just keep struggling and falling in their actions. The other thing is, is that just because of what we do, that doesn't actually tell a, tell anyone that we have faith. I mean, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses are, frankly, much more obedient in general than evangelical Christians. But that doesn't mean they have faith in Christ. That doesn't mean they have a genuine faith. And, so, and, and, and so, so we have this issue. So basically what he's saying is good actions don't necessarily reveal correct beliefs. So what of your works? They don't reveal that, that you have right beliefs. And, 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 so, and so James wants to respond to that. And I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that, is that James being very practical is talking more about the horizontal relationship and how we see faith work out because we can only see what's on the outside. We can't see what's on the inside. When, when Paul talks a lot about faith, it, he often talks about the vertical piece of faith that, that God sees inside. And so they're kind of opposite sides of the same coin of God seeing internally and really we can only see on the outside of one another. And so James in verse 20, I think he responds by saying this, he says, do you wanna be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? He says, do, you, do I need to show you then in, in, in kind of this foolish talk that you're making that faith apart from works is useless? And he says, like, what's the use of your faith if it doesn't flesh out in what you do? It's kind of useless. It's, it's something that's there that doesn't matter. It doesn't benefit anyone. And and so then and then from there it's 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 interesting because he, he decides to go into this this these examples. He says, What works, what makes our faith profitable and valuable? And he says it's it's those things we do as a result. And so in verse 21, he uses example of the kind of the greatest hero in in the in the Israelite history. It's it's Abraham, the father of all of them. And so he says in verse 21, "'Was not Abraham our father justified by works "'when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar?' You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And then the scripture says, uh, was fulfilled that says, "'Abraham believed God "'and it was counted to him as righteousness "'and he was called friend of God.'" You see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone alone. Which this feels like it kind of comes into conflict where Paul says that we are justified by grace through faith alone. And James kind of throws this idea of, of works into that. And, and so one of the things that, again, we have to understand the differences between those two biblical authors is how they are using the idea of justification and, and because, because Paul actually in Galatians and Romans references Abraham and how he was justified by faith, not by works. In fact, Paul makes it a point to say it has nothing to do with works. In Romans 4, uh, chapter, verse 1, it says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness He believed God so so Paul's arguing that you no know, no God didn't give Abraham righteousness because of his works it was his unmerited favor that he gave this to him And and so really what what Paul is referencing there is Genesis 15 where God tells Abraham that he's going to make him into a a mighty nation. And it says that upon hearing what God said, the promise God made to Abraham, Abraham believed God, had faith in God, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Paul's talking about. And so when Paul talks about this justification it's, this, it's the idea that we most understand in theology that there's this judicial verdict of innocence of a person who's placed their trust in Jesus, a person who's trusted Jesus for salvation. That's what Paul's talking about. But James here is actually referencing Genesis 22 where, where God tells Abraham to go and offer his son as a sacrifice and so Abraham takes Isaac up. And then in twenty two eleven it says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And then God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. So basically what God's saying there to Abraham is that your obedience has shown that you trust me. Your obedience has revealed your faith. And, and so as, as James talks about this, he, he basically says that there's an Old Testament understanding of justification which has to do with the Old Testament law. And, and that idea of being justified under the law is that it was for people to look, make, make right judgments of one another if you obeyed the law, that meant you kept the law. So it was, it was vindication by your conduct according to the law. So for example, today it would be that, well, the law is the, there's a speed limit that's 55 miles an hour. I believe in that speed limit. But the only way I can be vindicated is that I actually drive the speed limit. Because if I drive, then I drive 75 and get pulled over and I tell the officer Yeah, but I believe in the 55-mile speed limit. That's probably not a great argument to get out of the ticket because I'm only going to be vindicated if I was actually going that speed. And and so that's more what James is talking about. And what's interesting of this passage is that right before that, in chapter two, before we get into this idea of faith, he says in verse 12, so speak and so act, as we talked about last week, as those who are to be judged, under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And then later, right after this passage in three one, James makes a statement: "Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness." James seems to be talking a lot about judgment in the in the framework of the final, the great white throne of Christ, which is where we as believers are there and we make an account of what we did and what we didn't do, and we receive judgment there. It's not a judgment that condemns us to eternal separation from God, but it is a judgment that judges what we did, every single thing that we did. And it seems that that's more what James is seeing here and thinking about as he writes to the believers in the, in, who are scattered throughout the churches. And so justified in Paul's writing seems to refer to how a person gets into relationship with God, while James describes what that relationship must look like as it matures and ultimately, hopefully, receives a well-done, my good and faithful servant at the judgment seat of Christ. And and, and so so what what he's saying here is, is that, yeah, Abraham's faith was made complete was matured, was productive, when he obeyed. So, so Abraham believed God, but what if he didn't take Isaac up to the mountain to sacrifice him? Well, that that seems to be a problem, doesn't it? I mean, Abraham can say, "Well, no, but God, I believe you, so we're good. I don't have to do that thing." And 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 so and so James says, "That's that's what it looks like. That's what maturing faith." And he says, and he says, uh. You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. His faith was shown to be present and complete and effective and beneficial because of what he did. Abraham's faith went much further than just an intellectual assent to what God said. It was an active force producing more works or maybe as we put it in the terminology of Jesus, it produced more fruit. And really if you if you just kind of substitute fruit with works in this it actually sounds more like what Jesus was saying. <laughs> but it's funny how we just have a struggle with works, but we don't have a problem with fruit. And and so if we just even if if we even look at that look at that statement James makes, he says you see that faith was active along with the fruit and faith was completed by the fruit he bore. Like that almost makes it sound more like what almost exactly what Jesus said. And, and so it's not an issue of, of, of James preaching a works-based salvation. And then he goes on, which, which is great because he goes on and he gives one more example. He says, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. So, so James uses the, the, biggest hero in the Jewish faith. And then he uses a woman who's a Gentile and obscure to say that she had this mature faith too. And so what he does there is basically he says that, that, that faith finds its greatest significance and meaning in our life when we obey God. That's when faith finds its greatest significance in our life is when we obey if we spend our entire life not obeying, again, what's profitable or beneficial or useful about our faith? It just doesn't make sense. And James is pointing that out. Finally, he finishes with this. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, also faith apart from works is dead. He uses spirit as in our spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but the body without our spirit is non it's just it just lays there and he says so also because the spirit animates our body and so he says so also faith without works is dead in other words works the fruit that we produce animate our faith our faith works in that way and so I think what's interesting about this is that, is that there's really no issue, but the question raises for us, is my faith, is your faith that you claim to have profitable and productive, or is it dead and useless? Is your faith profitable and productive, or is it dead and useless? Is it making a difference in anyone's life? Because the way my faith will make a difference in others' lives is through my obedience to Jesus, my King. It's not saying I have to do works to earn anything. It just says that my faith is, words of James, like worthless if I'm not doing anything. What good is it? One of the things that has hit me this week, we, if you don't know, we, we live in a very difficult time. <laughs> and there's lots of people who are very troubled and hurting There's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of stuff going on in the world around us. Um, Just last night, heard from a few friends this morning that there is a police officer here in Modesto that was was shot, kind of an ambush. And um, he's in critical condition in the hospital right now. So there's a whole group of people who are concerned and praying and, and families. This week I've had more than one conversation with people who are struggling with their convictions and what to do about different employers requiring different things of them. If you've read anything about the news, um, if you work in the medical field or I think teachers as well, that employers are requiring that they get vaccinated. And it doesn't matter what your position on getting a vaccination or not getting one is, that doesn't matter. About this, What matters is how we care for and have compassion and support those around us who are hurting. Because kind of the line that's been drawn in those people's lives is get the vaccination or get fired. And some, not all believers, but some believers within the range of how the Holy Spirit works in and through us and on us there's some believers who have very strong convictions about not taking the vaccine. And again, this isn't about our position. This is about loving and caring for those who are hurting and struggling. And so there are those who are deeply struggling right now because they have a conviction that they should not get the vaccine. So it's hard. The other thing that we've heard about that we may not have put together, you may not realize, but as the US exits Afghanistan, the moment that they walk away from one plot of land, the Taliban comes racing in. And there are, there's incredible things going on in Afghanistan right now. Um, if you remember uh, a couple months ago, Steve Trevino was here and he was up sta- on stage with me and he was sharing about the Iranian church and Afghanistan is the second fastest growing church on the globe. Not the biggest, but the fastest, second fastest growing. And I don't know if you'll remember this or not, but one of the things Steve mentioned about the church in Afghanistan is that one of the primary leaders, <laughs> Afghanistan is a teenage girl. Here's what a number of leaders within the underground church in Afghanistan got the other day. They got letters from Taliban authorities saying, We know where you are and we know what you're doing. And so these men and women and children in the church in Afghanistan have to make a decision. And their response to those letters were we're not going anywhere. And what the church in Afghanistan is currently doing, it is receiving all of these people, Afghan people who are running away from the Taliban and they are receiving those people, helping them, caring for them and sharing Jesus with them at likely the cost of their own lives. And so there's a reality that there's a lot of hard things happening. And I think that helps put things into perspective about our faith and our fruit. What we say we believe about God and what we do with that. how we trust him, how we support one another, how we care for one another. Here's here's what I think is important for us to remember. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. The thing that we need to keep remembering, because here's the thing it is not going to become easier to live out your faith in Jesus Christ moving forward. It's not. But what we need to remember is that Jesus says, don't fear those things. Don't fear what you think might happen because this has been forced on you. Don't fear what you think might happen if you stand your ground in Afghanistan and continue to speak the name of Jesus in the the face of a brutal and horrifying regime. He says, because Jesus knows you and cares for you. And I don't know what sacrifice God will ask of us as individuals in the areas that we're in. But one thing I do know is God has given us salvation. He's given us our faith. And his desire is for us to mature in that faith and become more like Jesus. So I wanna close in prayer right now. But here's what I wanna do. I wanna ask first, maybe some of you are in the medical field or in education and you are struggling this morning with your convictions and with what you, what, what's being forced on you. Maybe you have a friend who's in one of those places. I'd ask you to stand and I wanna pray for you this morning. So if you're in that situation or you have a friend that you'd like to stand in the place of four, then go ahead and do that because I want to pray for you this morning. And then the second thing I'd like to ask is, I'd like to ask some of you who maybe have a heart for this and God has placed this on your mind, some of us to stand and be prayed for on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who are literally giving their lives just to tell people about Jesus. And I wanna pray for all of us because regardless of what we're facing, we are all part of the family of God. And forgetting about positions on things and forgetting about our preferences of things, we need to be praying for each other and standing up on each other's behalf. And that'll come about in different ways. And maybe the best I can do today is stand in the gap for a teenage girl in Afghanistan who's willing to give her life for the gospel. And maybe this morning as I can stand and maybe even send a text or a call to a friend who's had anxiety all week trying to figure out what to do about their job. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and God, I pray for those who are struggling so deeply with things that are heavy burdens for them to carry. God, I pray for those, whether they're teachers or or in the medical profession or, or wherever they are, Father, I pray that as they work to try to figure out what to do and how to do it, God, I pray that you would clearly lead them, but God, even more so, regardless of their situation or circumstance, that you would give them peace and joy and hope. God, that they would know not just with their mind your care and your promises for them, but God, that they would live those things out. That those who are around them would see the fruit in their lives and they would be drawn to their Father in heaven. Father, I pray for those in Afghanistan in particular right now those who love you, those who have surrendered to you, those who have given. As I think, so much more I've ever even thought about giving to follow you. I pray that you will protect them and provide for them and give them power. And Father, we know that sometimes you ask us for more than we wanna give. So God, for those that you ask for, the very sacrifice of their lives for the sake of the gospel, Father, I pray that they would stand strong and endure to the very end. That their sacrifice in the likeness of Jesus Christ would move their enemies into repentance and salvation. So Father, I pray that we would be a people who have deep and strong faith that is seen by everyone in how we live. The fruit that our lives bear and the works that we do. So Father, I thank you for this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.